When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. I just associate it with dummies. Mackey and Judd. They think that they're you-know-what, don't stink, and they know everything. On 1500 ESPN. Now on Mackey and Judd. Do you believe in past lives? Did we ever really land on the moon? Questions. What are the six degrees that separate you and Kevin Bacon? Of significant importance. You know, really glad we created this sense of community. Among the victims of Patrick Royce Twitter blockage. Now people have a forum here. And I'm just going to read you guys before we dive into questions and Mike Golick Jr. Uh, John chimes in. Oh, by the way, the poll percentages are uh, as follows. Patrick Royce has blocked one in every four people who have voted on this 1500 ESPN poll. All have right. you been blocked by Patrick Royce? And John says, made a comment to Pat once about the great man's cognitive ability and ended up blocked. Mm-hmm. Jake said he blocked me, and I congratulated him on the show. I did criticize his Vikings take, but nothing mean-spirited. Sarah says, many years ago, I asked him not to tweet Olympic spoilers without a warning and got blocked. <laughs> Remember when he used to do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, no, he... What a bad guy. No, no, he he flat yeah, out Patrick. said... He, Patrick said before the last Olympics, flat out, if you tweet him and ask him not to tweet the spoilers, he was just going to block you automatically. Yeah. He made that very clear. CC says, uh, he made a joke. I added to the joke. No, a see, listener took the bait, ended up that the listener got blocked. The yes, third guy in third guy in always gets blocked don't, by Pat. Rule of thumb, don't try to out-funny Royce. You will be blocked. Yeah. You will be blocked or in person get this. <laughs> just that quick laugh. Like, that's not funny. Don't try and make... <laughs> don't, don't try and take my funny and make so it he, funny. He laughs like Beavis? Yeah, he's like, huh, yeah. <laughs> Just a quick laugh. Uh, Dave, what kind of questions do you have for us? I already told you they're the best questions or the greatest questions in the world. Everybody loves these questions. So let's start with this one. Donald Trump tweeting this morning. Do you think the three UCLA basketball players will say, thank you, President Trump? They were headed for 10 years in jail. Those three, of course, being Leangelo Ball, Jalen Hill, Cody Riley, who returned to the U.S., After doing a little shoplifting, allegedly, in China, now the conversation is, well, what should the punishment be? Maybe not 10 years in jail, like Trump says it could have been in China, but what should the punishment be as far as the uh, the basketball career goes at UCLA? This was a hot topic last night between Jay Williams and Seth Greenberg. Quick, give this a listen. I think it should be suspended for a couple of games, and I think you move on. A couple of games? A couple of games, you move on. Are you kidding Three games. A couple of games? We, 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 we're talking about kids. I don't care about kids. You're I, taking I your team to another country, a different culture. All right? They, they steal things in three different stores, allegedly. Okay. All right? To me, that's egregious. You're representing your family. You're representing the university. 
Anthony, I, you know, I, when you go to another country, you're representing your country. These guys need to, like what you said earlier, Breeze, they can practice so, with their team. They should not be able to play this year. This, this is an embarrassment. Year. Jay Williams says a couple games. Seth Greenberg says they should be out for a full season, and he later went on to say, you know, they should also probably just be looking for other schools. Yeah. Who's more right? Uh, Williams is. Here's my thing. I'm going through a phase. I'm getting really tired of trying to pretend like college sports has it has good to it. It has winning to it. It has money to it. It's incredibly corrupt. And so... Okay, what these guys did was incredibly stupid, and I would suspend them for a couple games. I think that's fine. But the bottom line is this. UCLA is going to be featured, my guess, is on national TV quite a bit. As a viewer, I want to sit down and watch them have as good a chance to win as possible because nobody else, for the most part, gives a damn. So suspend them for two games. But let's quit trying to act like Division One college sports is in any way about teaching kids about life. Division one college sports is about adults trying to get as rich as possible. They're greedy. A lot of them are corrupt and they are using the kids to their benefit. So to then come back on the kids and be like, well, you're going to learn a lesson. Give me a, the FBI is investigating college basketball. The FBI is investigating college bat. So I'm really getting tired of this notion that college sports has good to it. It has greed to it. Uh, well, I think those are two separate discussions, like the the corruption of college basketball and the pipelines of money exchanging hands. For for this particular thing, if players are in another country and stealing things and just generally embarrassing the schools in the United States, okay, like I'm more with Jason Williams here, or Jay Williams, I guess. Five-game suspensions, and all three of them have to sit in a room for 48 straight hours watching LeVar Ball debate a pinata first take style. Oh, there's kids in there. Just so like LeVar so Ball debating a pine tree for 48 straight hours along with a five-game suspension. That's what I would do. All right. That actually sounds really good. <laughs> what, LeVar Ball debating a pine tree? Yeah. I could see that being very good TV. Yeah. <laughs> it's not much different than... Than uh, him debating Stephen A. Smith sometimes. <laughs> Let's just get to question number two. Case Keenum has been named the starter for the Vikings come Sunday. Let's do it. Vikings, Rams, percent chance he makes it as the starter through all four quarters. And percent chance as well he starts the next one Thanksgiving Day. Um, Higher percentage he makes it through the next four quarters than starts the Thanksgiving game. I'm starting to think Thanksgiving, Matthew's been saying this, I think Judd has brought this up, that Thanksgiving game feels like a really good spot, short week, especially if they're telling Bridgewater, start preparing a little bit here for the Lions. Like 80% prep work for the Rams in case you have to play, and then like another 20% on the Lions. So I would say for your percentages that you ask for, Dave, uh, there's a 75% chance Case Keenum finishes the game against the Rams Got a factor for injury and bad performance against a really good team. And then I would say like a two-thirds, so 66% chance he starts the game against the Lions. I still don't think it's a great, great chance that he comes out until he starts to perform more poorly. Assuming health, uh, 95% chance that he uh, that Case plays the entire game on Sunday. And I've actually been saying for quite a while now, I think the most likely Teddy game is not Detroit, but Atlanta. Uh, which would give him an extra week then to practice. So I will stick with that. So I will say the odds are very strong that Case Keenum also starts the Detroit game. And I think if we're going to see the move made uh, to Teddy, it's going to be the next Sunday 
after the Thanksgiving game at Atlanta. So 10 days to prep, that would make Correct. sense. Correct, and then a lot of practice time, too. Uh, speaking of the Vikings-Rams Sunday, Greg Olson will be in the broadcast booth. Of course, the Vikings have been upset about that. We talked about that. Tom Pelissero tweeting yesterday that Rick Spielman spoke with the NFL, expressed the concerns that it's inappropriate to have him uh, in the booth when he's on IR, but set to come back and play the Vikings in a couple weeks as a member of the Panthers. Greg Olson says, look, I was never going to be in any production meetings anyway. I totally get it, but uh, watching the game from the booth is no different than watching it on film 93 times, which I was going to do anyway. So Fox has said, yeah, he's going to be there. Deal with it. Is that good enough for you as a Vikings GM or coach if he's not going to be in any meetings or any prep stuff but still in the booth? Yes, I'm fine. Uh, But here's what I don't get. I don't understand why they didn't find a game uh, this week with an opponent that Fox is doing that Carolina has either played or is not going to play and and give him that game. If he was going to be the analyst in the booth with the play-by-play guy and that was it, then I guess I might question it, but I get it. But he's going to be in a three-man booth. So I don't understand why they didn't say, oh, okay, Vikings, that's a decent point. Let's let's let Olsen uh, have a chance to be in meetings and all of that with a team he's not going to play against. So I'm fine with the solution. I don't get why they didn't budge, though, and just say, you know what, the Vikings do have a decent point here. Let's allow Olsen to have the full broadcast experience, and that can come against a team he's not going to play. I mean, I guess my Seems question would be, can't, does the world need a third guy in the booth for this game? Does the world really need Greg Olson's thoughts? we got to get Greg Olson's takes oh. on the Vikings and the Rams. Like, don't most guys on their bye week, don't they just go into a studio? Don't they just go into the Fox studio or NFL Network and then they hang out in a suit with all the other guys and make predictions on the games and stuff? Like, why can't he do that? And then if he wants to get into broadcasting, help. Tony Romo did like 10 fake broadcasts before he jumped on and did the first live one with Jim with Jim Nance on actual CBS TV. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I do get the Vikings gripe here that you're looking for every edge you can get. And if I think it's fine that he's not allowed in the meeting rooms, I think that solves it because Greg Olson has a good point. Well, I'm gonna, if I'm going to watch from the press box or watch on the all 22 nine times anyways, then like it's no different. But if he were in the actual rooms and maybe privy to information, oh sure. Yeah. So uh, now could. Could the could the play by play guy who was in the meeting rooms give information to Greg Olson? Yeah, probably. Why not but... just give him a different Fox game though? Like this is not sure. that this is not that hard. I don't know. I guess we I guess we desperately need this Greg Olson in the difficult. booth uh, for, for this game. So, all right, let's come back. Mike Golick Jr. We can talk more football with him. He's also making uh, somewhat of a big. I mean, he, his show is still going to be three a.m. to five a.m. on fifteen hundred ESPN, but he's going to be joining. Uh, his dad and Trey Wingo starting in a couple weeks on their new show. So we can talk some radio with him, talk some football. And then if you missed it, we're going we're gonna to replay the Paul Molitor interview from earlier on in the show. It was wonderful. AL Manager of the Year. He's wide open, answered all of our questions, and uh, it was great. So we'll do that later on this hour as well. Mackie and Judd from Target Center. Mackie and Judd show rolls on. That's right, sports fans. This is 1500 ESPN. Mackie and Judd hanging out downtown Minneapolis here at Target Center. Uh, Jamal Crawford was great early in the show. Paul Molitor, American League Manager of the Year, joined us. So if, uh, if you missed any of it, go subscribe to our podcast, Apple Podcast, iTunes, uh, 1500ESPN.com slash podcast. And uh, another one of our favorite guests every week, Mike Golick Jr. You can find him 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. Central Time on 1500 ESPN and ESPN Radio. And uh, let's actually, there's a lot of football stuff we could ask you about, but 
Uh, just your thoughts. You, I know that you've done radio with your dad, you know, you know, semi-frequently here. You're a regular guest on Mike and Mike, but with those guys changing up the show and you're going to be a regular for the first hour, uh, your thoughts on the, the changes there at ESPN Radio, Mike? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And obviously I'm really excited to, to get to work with dad full time more now and, and for something new. And I know dad is as well. I mean, it's rare that, you know, almost two decades into this profession, you get the chance to really rechange and do something that's totally, well, not totally different, but a stark departure from where you've been. But it's still strange in this week, knowing it's the last week of Mike and Mike, a show that has obviously changed my family's life, but also been really the only thing that I've known. I mean, we moved to Connecticut for this show in 1998. I just saw a picture of it the other day, and I was nine, ten years old. <laughs> and for the better, for the better part of the next two decades of my life, this has been my reality. I mean, when people ask, "Is it weird to see your dad on TV?" That was the number one question I got growing up. My response is always the same: "Is well, I, I don't know any other way. Like my dad's always been on TV. This is how it's supposed to be, and it was always, you know, uh, to the same, you know, that same side opposite Mike Greenberg, sitting to his left." And just a different world. I mean, looking at that now, my dad even saying when we were sitting around in the studio today, just looking the other direction from his chair, he's been used to looking right at Greeny for two decades. And now to look left in his chair that he'd be sitting in is even different. But uh, I think taking this week to kind of appreciate what they've done on Mike and Mike has certainly been what I've done. And I'm sure what dad's taken stock of in his own regard because it's so impressive, and who knows the next time we'll see uh, you know, a national morning drive show last for almost 18 years together. The incredible thing to me, Mike, is this. Your, your dad now looks fantastic. You, you go back and look at those pictures from 2000, and he's a mammoth man. He's huge. He, he looks great now. He's, he looks but he's, he's an inspiration to a guy like me who says you can actually start to improve your look as you get older. And I tell you, it's just it's, it's put all the faith in whoever you know the the woman is in your life because all of the credit in that goes to my mom. My mom dragged my dad kicking and screaming into this world of weight loss because, as I put it, she figured that she's going to have to spend the rest of her life with him. She's going to make him look the way she wants throughout <laughs> that time period. And job well done by her because yeah, now it's got me like taking a look in the mirror and saying, all right. I gotta lose that next ten pounds, or else I'm not even keeping pace with my dad. <laughs> Honey, why do you keep pushing me to this plastic surgeon? I don't really understand oh, what's looks, going on. It looks good. Uh, go, Golik Junior. Full head of hair. She doesn't have to touch that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who would you say? I mean, your dad is the obvious answer here, but who would you say in your radio career, as you're getting into this, uh, who do you learn from the most? I, I know this is going to sound hilarious on the surface of this. Wait, let me guess. I, Can I guess? Go for it. It's got to be Stugatz, right? It really is. And I know it sounds counterintuitive because our show on Sunday mornings is, is sort of a, a polished turd. And on the Levitard show, they're really about as playing as fast and loose as any radio show out there. But uh, from the minute I first met Stugatz when we did the fantasy football marathon over a year ago now, just sitting and talking with him off air for a guy that you know, was the program director at 790 down in Miami for a long time and has been doing the show with Dan really almost as long when you combine local and national as Dad and Greeny have been doing Mike and Mike. He's a guy with just a, a very unique understanding of, you know, how to make interesting radio and how to listen to everyone that's on the set and how you can really pull funny from any part of that crew and the ecosystem they built so well down there. So 
uh, yeah, I would put Stu Gotts right there in that two spot as far as influencers early on. And I've been you know, fortunate that uh, he was a guy I met early on who has been kind enough to kind of continue to keep me under his wing as I joined that pseudo levitard coaching tree. Vikings, Eagles, Saints, and Rams. R- rank your thoughts on the National Football Conference for me as uh, things stand right now. Yeah, listen, it, it's, it's impressive. I mean, for you guys, the, the interesting conversation starts becoming now as I hear more and more of these rumblings about Mike Zimmer worried about the quarterback situation. Like, what am I missing? You're a first-place team. Case Keenum in the last few weeks has shown well enough. Like, I, I think with this defense, basically where the Vikings are arriving this year, is just let, that, let them win it for you and don't biff it up on the other side. Go to sort of the Alex Smith Kansas City model. And Case Keenum seems to have demonstrated enough of that. Again, the Vikings see Teddy every day, so they know more than me. But, man, a guy who's been out of football as long as Teddy's been, trying to just get back there, and you saw the emotion from him as he got back onto the sideline for the first time even, and what a triumph that's been for him personally. I don't want to detract from that, but I don't know how ready that makes you to all of a sudden go out there, jump into the middle of a season where you haven't played yet, haven't played period since that horrific injury, and somehow managed to do this. So I know Keith Keenum's going to be the starter going to this weekend, but I struggle to see that changing going forward, especially like you mentioned, some of the rest of the conference around the NFC. I mean, you look at the way that the the Eagles have obviously been the story of the year, but the Saints coming on in recent weeks, man. I mean, this team found defense and found a running game, really. I mean, the win last weekend was as unsaints a win in recent memory as anything that we've had in a while, but it's 2017, so crazier stuff has happened. Yeah, to put up like 40-plus points on the road and don't throw a touchdown pass uh, and then and to be traveling up to, to cold conditions on your – so just – We've been having this quarterback discussion all week long, and I think that the general feeling is if Case Keenum hadn't, if Case Keenum hadn't thrown the two horrible interceptions in the second half, that kind of showed his personality. Where like you're at the blackjack table and you're at a ten dollar table, up a thousand dollars. Know when it's time to back away from the table. Don't like ride your hot streak until you're back even. And that's what he tried to do in the second half against Washington. So. Um, it's that like you're a little worried that he's going to go rogue like Brian Hoyer in a playoff game after being hot in the regular season and uh, and throw five interceptions and end your season. So that's kind of the concern with Case Keenum. Yeah, I can understand that too. But at the same time, like the nature of this offense is to kind of push it, right? Like you've got a lot of nice shiny toys stealing one of the most unexpected bright shiny toys in recent memory as far as NFL wide receivers go. And you couple that with Stephon Diggs and the rest of the guys on this offense, like. I get that maybe the court, you know, maybe it feels like with the coaching staff, all right, Teddy's a guy that we can count on to play much more conservative, especially because he's coming off all that. But, man, I, I, you make the blackjack analogy. I'm not a guy who tends to play scared. Like, you got to hit your splits and doubles if you're thinking about bringing home anything worth value. And we, But we do this projection with every team. We look at ceilings. That's why so many people end up being hesitant to go all in on a team like Kansas City because they look and say, all right, well, what's the ceiling of this team? How high can they really go with Alex Smith as the quarterback for that team where your best receiving option is your tight end? Like These are all tough questions that we kind of ask, especially around this time of year. All right, Golik, I have to ask the question, what happened to your Irish on Saturday night? Oof, how much time you guys got? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, vent, was, my friend, vent. Dude, yeah. it is, it, it's, it's one of those things that I got a chance to go back and watch the tape and kind of remove myself from the emotion of the moment where you watch things 
get out of hand in a hurry. And, and really it comes down to, listen, coming into this game, Notre Dame had played mistake-free football, and they had forced turnovers. And Miami won with the exact model they'd been winning on, but really Notre Dame had been as well, which is points off turnovers. And I think Miami did that this weekend better than we've seen in recent weeks, where against North Carolina, they were giving the ball back just as frequently. Against Georgia Tech, it was a lot closer. 24 points off four turnovers. Those, that's exactly why you should win a football game. And for Notre Dame, you fail to capitalize early. It's really exactly what happened when we played Alabama my last year, is you can go back to early in that game and see a couple of plays here and there on offense and special teams that we just didn't make. And whether it was this game, Brandon Wimbush overthrowing an early touchdown pass, whether it was a wide receiver dropping a sure first down on the next play, whether it was that offensive line that was expected to go in and right, wrong, or indifferent, play perfect football as the strength of the team, and missed on a couple of easy things in the beginning that gave up pressures that stalled this offense. When you do that and you couple it with a young quarterback who is in an environment that he hasn't really seen the likes of yet in a pressure situation and had a rough day with it and gave the ball away a few times, when your best punch can't help you weather the storm early and Josh Adams and that ground game weren't enough, this tends to happen, especially against a team that's as athletically gifted at the linebacker and safety spot as Miami was. And I think that's ultimately where they won the game were those two levels. I hate to pick at old scabs here, but, you know, I'm, I'm a Notre Dame fan. And uh, that, that, so that Alabama game that you referenced a few years ago, I remember we had a big viewing party. We, like, rented out this community room with a 70-inch flat screen and had a viewing party. And, like, an hour into the game, we were watching Monday Night Raw because it was just, like, the game was over. Did you guys go into that game thinking 100% that you're going to beat Alabama to win the national championship? Oh, yeah, and this isn't, this isn't me addressing this to you, but this is the, the general, that question I've gotten more since that game than almost anything else, and I promise, and again, this, is, this isn't me saying this to you, but just in general, there is nothing that gets me angrier than the thought behind that question, because going into that game, I, I don't know what people expected us to think, and we looked at that as a team that had gone all year with a dominant defense and an offense that on our side had averaged 200 and 200 on the air and the ground. And regardless of anything else, you don't get to, you don't get to a stage like that without being a competitor that looks at situations and says, oh, yeah, we got this. Like, I remember Rocket Ishmael came and talked to us once when I was at Notre Dame, and he said, I've been on good teams and bad teams. And the bad teams, you get the schedule that comes out when he was on bad teams in the NFL, and they say, oh, well, that game's going to be tough. I don't know if we got that one. You look, keep looking on the schedule, and you keep finding reasons why it might not work. And then he says, when you're on the good teams, you look at that schedule, and every game looks winnable. From the minute you get that, you go, well, there's no reason why we shouldn't win that. And that was our team that year. We looked at every game on that schedule when it came out, and those were games at Michigan State with Stanford at home, down in Norman and Oklahoma, a place that we had never played before in my time there. And we looked at every single one of them and said, why not us? And that was the mentality all through the season. And that didn't change with Alabama. Now, we didn't go out there and back that up in a way that anyone should believe me when I say this. But I can only tell you the temperature inside that room. We thought we were going to go out there and do our thing. And for whatever reason, we didn't play our best football that day. And it showed against a talented team. Hey, can you give me like two or three other questions that I can bank for later to really get under your skin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? You can ask me about hair compare and contrast with Dad and maybe why I still haven't lost that extra couple of pounds, why I look older than Dad at this point. That's all, that's all I can give you right there. I think that's the best ammo you can have. Oh, wow. That, that's not good. That would, that would be a bad one. Why do you look older than your dad would be a bad one. Oh, I get that all the time, too, guys, all the time. 
Oh, it's God. not your fault, though. The the hair thing is not your fault. Yeah, you, it's inherited from your mom's side. You know, I mean, we but, all know that. But Mike. the key too, like with the weight loss thing, I mean, radio brings in a lot of opportunities for weight loss endorsements. And so, if you're not riding the weight roller coaster, you're not cashing in your endorsements the right way in radio. No, Dad's really Dad's turned weight loss and his type two diabetes into a pretty lucrative. <laughs> diet, so I'm proud of him. You can't knock the hustle at all on that. But uh, I think Mom's happy now that the health has trumped all of this because he's not getting any younger. And so at some point that that uh, that fine line, I think that. Uh, that graph at some point crosses over the other way. So this is probably the good direction to go. It's Mackie and Judd here for pancreatic cancer. Uh, yeah, that'll be <laughs> a good path. Oh, All right, Golick Jr., we'll catch up, man. See you See later. Ya. Hey, thanks, guys. Talk to you. All right, Mike Golick Jr. joins us every week. You guys are getting spanked so bad. Let me ask you a couple <laughs> questions about that one. That was, uh, that was the party that we had at Chris Long's old place and Longer who is a massive Irish fan. Oh, yeah. We, so, wa- we he, watched that game. To, were you? Yeah, yeah I was there. Right. We were all together. You you were, you were. didn't take it bad, though. Like, they started to get drubbed, and you're like, yeah, okay, it's Bama. Yeah. I think at Chris that point, Long, I think, might have left the room for a while. I think at that point in my life, I was able to pretty quickly, like, eject my emotions from the he, equation. Like, oh, my God, this is not okay. I'm going right. I'm, I'm to emotionally detach. Yeah. So uh, when we come back, let's replay the Paul Molitor interview from the 9 o'clock hour AL Manager of the Year. He joined us. uh, Just a wide-ranging, great conversation with him. We'll play that back when we come back from Target Center. But uh, first, Luther Brookdale Toyota is the car dealership and service department my family and I have been going to for over 30 years. Two things for you. Number one, they've got 2018 models on the lot. You can get into a brand-new RAV4 LE or Camry SE. I love that sport model Camry with the new sleek look, for $199 a month on a lease. Uh, definitely more into leasing these days than, uh, than uh, I mean, it's just personal preference than financing, because I love upgrading every two to three years. Number two thing for you, Luther Brookdale Toyota will buy your used vehicle from you. Any make, any model, in as little as 15 minutes, a professional appraiser will give you a no-obligation offer and no appointment necessary. So stop in and find out what your vehicle is worth. Luther Brookdale Toyota, 694 on Brooklyn Boulevard, and LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. Phil Mackey. I'm a big fan of yours, man. I'm a big fan. Judd Zolgad. Why can't you be enthusiastic and quirky? I'm Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Mackey and Judd, Target Center. Paul Molitor joined us in the 9 o'clock hour, the morning after he was announced as AL Manager of the Year, Judd Zolgad. And uh, it was so good at 9.15, we yep. said, let's play it back for the audience at 12.30. So here is Paul Molitor. Only two humans in the history of the universe have been manager of the year and in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and you're one of those two human beings. Congratulations. Hey, good morning to you guys. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, they asked me about that yesterday. There, I, there hasn't really been all that many guys that have found their way into Cooperstown that, you know, elected to stay around in the game, either in coaching or manager roles. But, uh, you know, recent history, we had Ryan Sandberg, and, you know, you go back to Ted Williams and Yogi and, Frank Robinson, of course, I think was was the other guy to win it, but hard to explain. You know, I think I think a lot of guys just when they're done playing and they've had those type of careers just move on to different things. But uh, it's kind of one of those little trivial uh, anecdotes to uh, to that selection process yesterday. Hey, Paul, with with a, a guy like Ted, and we've seen certainly some Hall of Fame great players get get this chance. 
One problem for them has has been the ability to identify with, with the common player because they were so good. Is that tough at times? And, and how much, as you uh, took this job and got into it, did you have to slow yourself down? Because you see tons of things and were, were such a good player. How much did you have to adjust your thought process to realize that a lot of guys weren't like you? Well, I, I think that, you know, patience is a huge requirement, uh, whether you're in player development or coaching or managing. I, I think that spending all the time that I did in our organization being around our players at all the various levels, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to make these guys better, you know, both better people, better players, uh, anything that you can do to try to help them see their dreams come true. But, you know, I, I just look at it that I, I, I remind myself every day that this is a really hard game. And, uh, you know, you, you would like to see certain things that happen that don't, and you sometimes get a little frustrated. But you remember that that's uh, something that you endured as a player, too. So I, I just think trying to be empathetic and understanding that the game's not as easy as it might look sometimes when you watch it on television. What's the thing, Paul, about this game that uh, that drives you the most crazy sometimes, that guys that you see and say, I did this well or it should be done well, and right now, as a rule in the game, it's probably not done as successfully as, as you think it should be? Well, you guys know, I mean, there's a lot of things in the games that have changed, but one thing that I've had trouble just accepting and being tolerant towards is the acceptance of strikeouts. Um, you know, I, I just think that we have got to a point where, hey, everyone's just, they find reasons to, to justify, you know, the pitching's better, there's more home runs, uh, you win the game with a long ball. But, uh, you know, some of the best players in, in the game now are striking out 150 to 190 times. And I think everyone's kind of just accepted that. I, I see what Houston did and their, you know, concerted effort to try to really get better at putting the ball in play with two strikes. And I saw how it paid dividends. So I think that's the one thing that, that really gets, gets to me is the fact that, you know, we had eight, nine guys strike over 100 times and nobody thinks too much of it. It, it almost feels like we're going through – when the NBA went through a three-point renaissance five or six years ago, and all of a sudden, like, re- three-point records were, were being shattered year after year. Sure. Steph Curry just pulling up from 35 feet. It kind of yeah. feels that way with home runs and, and the art of hitting and whether the ball is different or not. I guess, you know, maybe we'll find out someday. But launch angle and and, and you kind of mentioned it with uh, with the acceptance of strikeouts. Does it feel like with the home run barrage and the velocity uptick in baseball that we're going through kind of a a new era in some ways, a renaissance? Yeah, I, th- I think that we've trended in that direction. I mean, you look at the last 20 to 25 years, you know, first we, we got through the whole steroid thing, and we, everyone was trying to figure out just how much that impacted the game and how it was played, and and we got back to playing a little bit more of a fundamental game for a short term, and now it's kind of trended back to the home run strikeout. Um, I do think pitching is a part of that, but you know, to me there's always a way to make adjustments to give yourself an opportunity. I, I, it's just one of those things that you want to keep guys, especially the ones that aren't getting the dividends of the home runs, the guys that aren't hitting the ball over the fence and they're still striking out that much. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Paul Molitor, American League Manager of the Year with us here. Mackie and Judd were downtown Minneapolis. Uh, how has if if you go back to your different you know your different phases of baseball as a Hall of Fame player yeah. and then working with front office and minor league uh, coordinator coach how has the manager slash front office dynamic or even like just the field staff and the player 
relationship with front office. How has that changed over the years? Well, a lot of the changes have come from the increase in, in information and the analytics and the parts of the game that we've learned to uh, break down to, uh, to new depths that you know give, give you a little bit better insight to not only your players but who you're competing against. And I think the dynamic between front office and, and managers has changed in that regard because there's so much more being filtered down on a daily basis that uh, they still give you flexibility and freedom to do your job, but you know that they expect you to be able to handle this information and try to apply it to your team to make it as competitive as possible. If I could grant you a wish, Paul, but it's just one um, on the market, go out and sign a top-notch starter or bullpen help, where where would you start? Which would you take? I would I would go the starter route personally. I mean, I I, I believe me, I'm not going to turn down any upgrades in pitching. Whatever we might do, I do know that Derek and Thad are both, you know, very committed to trying to find ways to uh, supplement our pitching and upgrade it. Hopefully, um, whether it's you know, obviously we still have some hope in our system. Some guys that we feel are, are getting really close to being impact up at the, this level, but either trades or some of the free agents. Um, I, I'd be surprised if we're not somewhat active in trying to find ways to, uh, to change a little, little bit of look at that pitching staff. And hopefully we don't have to go through 36 guys next year, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, man, that was... That'd be uh, a good start, Paul. Yeah, that's sure. right. Yeah. Do, you, do you guys, I mean, there are some firepower-loaded teams just watching the haymakers that the Dodgers and the Astros threw at each other, yeah. and uh, Indians won. They didn't lose for a month uh, in, in the second half of the year. Do you feel like with the right upgrades, the, you know, if, is it realistic to suggest the Twins can be World Series contenders next season, Paul? Well, I, I think that it will depend on, on how our pitching shapes up. You know, you guys know, you, you know, you watch those games even though they go until 12, 1 in the morning, uh, the, the, the bridge that we need to find a way to uh, cross over is is the difference in pitching staffs. I mean, the, the way the guys that these teams ran out there, whether it was Houston or Cleveland or the Dodgers, uh, they just keep coming. And uh, it, it changes the way guys are able to manage the game. I thought Hinch did a great job of being creative with his staff and finding ways to you know use his starters and relief rules and all those type of things. But, yeah, I, I think that if we can find ways to, you know, improve that pitching obviously you need good health you need to get a couple surprises some help from your system maybe a couple of your injured guys come back and contribute whether it's hughes or trevor may and people like that but yeah that that'll be the big key for us to be able to keep keep pushing forward and try to get to the next step i mean the scary thing watching that world series and those lineups you had some of the best pitchers in the world the the clayton kershaw's the ken giles kenley jansen's and they couldn't get outs you know, I mean, they're throwing 100 miles an hour with off-speed stuff, and they can't get outs against those lineups, and it's not an indictment on those pitchers. That's just kind of the state of, of those teams right now. Yeah, it's impressive when you, when you see that type of velocity coming out of the pen or guys that are starting games and, and to see these guys be able to compete and battle and find ways to still, you know, get big hits and hit the ball over the fence. It just shows you the eliteness of the guys that, that get to that point each and every year. And, uh, you know, we have some... Our, our young players are, are tremendously exciting, and we all think that they're uh, they're heading in the right direction. But we got to find a way to, to give them a little bit more support on the pitching side. You talk, talked about time of game, Paul. Uh, in your mind, are games too long now? And and if so, wh- what are some ideas that that you might have to get them down a, a little yeah. bit? Because it does it does seem that we are going now for three plus hours on a regular regular basis. Yeah, and I don't know how they're going to change that. It's, 
it's concerning because I do think that we lose some of the more casual fans because of lack of action. You know, I think the combination of strikeouts and walks are at an all-time high in terms of percentage of at-bats that result in those two outcomes. And, uh, you know, the, the visits to the pitching mound in the postseason, the change of pitchers, all those things are just creating very, very long games. And if the games are good and there's enough to keep you interested, it's one thing, but we all know there's, there's many, many games that don't have that kind of uh, ability to, to hold your interest. So we got we got to keep finding ways to try to keep our game at a little bit better pace. Uh, another, another minute or two here with Paul Molitor, American League Manager of the Year, joining us on Mackey and Judd. And from the outside looking in, uh, it, it, I mean, the results spoke for themselves for you guys on the field. It looked like you and the new front office tandem obviously blended well in terms of the results on the field. I, I got to ask you, did you feel at all disrespected by not getting an extension in the season or the perception that it took a long time uh, several days after the year? Was there anything about that process that, that rubbed you the wrong way, Paul? Absolutely not, to be honest with you. I I understand um, from the beginning, you know, com- uh, conversing with Derek and Thad last winter, it, it was very clear that they were going to spend, you know, a good 8 to 12 months evaluating our organization from top to bottom and I was a part of that process and you know I it's, it's like I told the players at the trade deadline I if you're going to worry about what other people are going to do and, and take away from what you need to do yourself it's, it's not a very good formula for success so I just let it play out um, they had informed me that they were going to just hold off on that and we stayed in the race I knew that it would have been a distraction so you know we just went ahead and finished the season the best way that we could. And then, you know, I was very grateful when it ended the way it did. You know, don't get me wrong, right. but I certainly did hold it against those guys. Hey, Paul, how, how much too, did you have to alter or change your thought process during the course of the year, just as far as what was brought to you information-wise, uh, as far as what was presented from a new train of thought? How yeah. much did, did you end up having to sort of alter things a little bit in how you think about baseball or approach yeah. games? It's not really that you change and who you are and what you think about players and what you think is important, but you just have more resources to, you know, analyze the competition in your own guys and, and be able to make better decisions. So there's no question that the things that were added, you know, influenced how I constructed lineups or, you know, made decisions in-game. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, too, that these guys – you know, Derek and Thad, they, they never came down and said, you need to play this guy, or this has to go this way, and this guy should close, and this guy should be your long man. It was, you know, hey, this is the information. Take it, talk to your coaches, and go ahead and try to make the best decisions that you can. Was there one or two things where they, they presented ideas early on, and you said, that's intriguing. I mean, was, was there anything that you hadn't thought of previously that got uh, put down in, in front of you and, and you actually embraced a lot? No, I, it was something I was looking forward to. I mean, I had heard and talked to other managers and coaches about some things that other teams were doing in terms of things that they had at their disposal that was influencing the way that they used their players or whatever decisions they would make. And, you know, when we hired Jeff Pickler uh, as quality control coach and Jeremy Hefner came in as our advanced scout um, who works in Clubhouse, you know, they were just able to put together, you know, unbelievable information. It was concise. It was easy to interpret and things that I was able to use and apply to our team. So <clears throat> it's hard to get into the, the specifics of that because there were so many things. You know, I got more information on my desk pregame than <laughs> I can't even compare it to the first couple of years, but it was 
just you know, gives you more things to study before the games, and, and hopefully the team's better for it. Well, Paul Molitor, we congratulate you, uh, American League Manager of the Year, and a big turnaround season for the Twins. And I think we're all looking forward to hot stove season and then spring training in, in a few months. So, well, I, yeah, I appreciate it. You know, just to finalize that, I just said, I said it yesterday. A Manager of the Year award is a reflection of a lot of people that made a lot of contributions, and, and I think it was really good for the Minnesota Twins for that to happen. Becky and Judd are back. Okay, let's not scare the children. On fifteen hundred ESPN. Number one New York Times best selling author John Feinstein delivers a dramatic chronicle of the bitterly fought 2016 Ryder Cup in his new book, The First Major, the inside story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. One of the nation's most respected authors, Feinstein's resume includes 35 books, working for the Washington Post, the Golf Channel, and Sirius XM, and being inducted into the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. He's pretty good. Enter to win your very own copy of the first major now on the 1500 ESPN stream player, boys. Thanks, Dave. It's been a fun show today. Jamal Crawford was fantastic. He's just a genuinely good guy and you hear that almost everywhere he goes and it just it's not it's not fake it's not hey the lights and the cameras are on and so i'm gonna i'm gonna be media friendly no, he's and, a nice guy he's a good yeah, guy he's just like that all the time he's like that off the air he's like that with everyone he meets paul's fantastic he was i like the fact that you can ask paul questions about baseball and you get real answers there's a lot of people who will you know be yeah they, the game's fine the way it is He's great because you, you can ask him questions about the sport and he won't just go default to, mm -hmm. well, here's the politically correct thing to say. Yeah, he also said, you asked him, you know, what, what would you want in the offseason? What's on your wish list? And I think most guys answer that question, front office guys, managers, very vaguely. Well, you know, you know we like our team. Absolutely. He yes. goes, I want a starting pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if he's you know, if he's going through his priority list, you know, whether it's Otani, the Japanese phenom, or you, Darvish, those guys would probably be at the top of the list. Mm hmm we can go over this more in detail tomorrow. Uh, Derek Wetmore and I did a whole episode on, on the Touch Em All podcast. What would make this a successful offseason for the Twins? But, you know, just like real quick, if they were to land an Alex Cobb and a really good reliever, so a good rock-solid number three starter with some big-time upside. Alex Cobb was on the verge of maybe being like a number two starter before the, the injury in Tampa. And then you wind up with a really, really good eighth-inning reliever. Um I think it starts there. That would that would be a successful offseason. That's a solid yes, that's a definite a solid start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if they get if they go out and get a top end starter, it, it'll be impressive. And, but that's as as we talked about uh yesterday, that's what makes this so much fun right now is we have no idea. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in a long time with, with that baseball team where their where their approach is something that we don't know. Yeah. Cuz ordinarily you could guess pretty closely as to what was going to happen, this time you can't. Yeah, I really, if they were to sign you, Darvish, I don't think that would even be a conversation in the Terry Ryan era. And maybe it's not right now, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were in on that and, and previous front Correct. offices weren't in on that. Yep. Uh, the other thing before we take off here for the day, if you, if you missed it earlier, Case Keenum has officially been named the Vikings starting quarterback against the Rams. And uh, this is a funny little anecdote. Case Keenum came to the podium for his weekly press conference today. Mm -hmm. This is from the Pioneer Press. Case Keenum on Vikings-Rams Sunday. Quote, just like everyone predicted, Case Keenum, he says in the third person, 
with the 7-2 Minnesota Vikings up against the 7-2 Rams. I'm excited. I really am. Jared Goff's a great player. He's playing really well, and I'm excited for him. So Case Keenum got benched for Jared Goff, which was expected. Like yeah. They've drafted Jared Goff you know, with their number one pick. That's going to happen. Uh, his last start for the Rams was week nine of last year on almost exactly a year ago on November 13th. It was a, it was, it was a 9-6 victory at New York against the Ugh. Jets in which Case Keenum went 17 for 30 for 165 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. He had more interceptions than touchdowns for that Rams team last year. So, like, circumstance, coaching, the Vikings and the Rams are great examples of a few tweaks in the offseason here and there. A new coach over there can make a huge difference. Although uh, McVay's success with with the Rams causes one big problem for, for new coaches now, the expectation, right? Because ordinarily, the thing is, you come in and you look at the program or a team, and you're like, okay, this is going to take three years or mm-hmm. two years or four years. Yeah. And now his, I mean, because he he went into a team that had a really good defense, a suspect offense, and has won immediately. That removes now the whole thing of, oh, you know what, we can just wait two years. You know, the Rams. It's funny about the Rams. The, the last time, I mean, they were okay for a couple years there. Like they had defenses with Jeff Fisher, but. When they've been best in the NFC good, they popped up randomly the last time around, almost 20 years ago. You know, they were uh, mostly off the grid, and I think four, maybe 4 and 12 that was the, in 1998. The Trent Green, right? Trent Green got hurt. Yeah, Trent w- Green Warner was, came in, and they took off. Trent Green was the Washington quarterback in 1998 mm-hmm. and then went to the Rams. But no one saw that coming in 1999, just like nobody saw this coming with with this year's Rams Absolutely. team. So, yeah. uh, Mackie and Judd, we're done for the day. Great show today. Go find all of the on-demand content at 15hardyspn.com, the Mackie and Judd Show page, or just subscribe to us on iTunes. Maybe give us a little love, a little five-star review. We'll see you tomorrow back in studio.